Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, should we do this? Let's do it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, We are uh, on the verge of Christmas, New Year's, and then the glorious... End of the holiday season, the Iowa caucuses, um, and and wanted to talk. I, I think not so much exactly about the the state of the race as it as it currently stands, but about the uh, splendor of deciding to choose presidential nominees in this way uh, because it's a little odd. I mean, if you, if you look at national polls, right, um, Joe Biden has just like like a like a big lead. Um, you know, it's, it's obvious if if the if the primary were a week from today, like Joe Biden would win. But the primary isn't a week from today. Instead, like a month from today, there's going to be caucuses in Iowa. And if you look at the Iowa caucus polling, it's quite close. And then if you ask the like fancy stat modelers, they think that whoever wins in Iowa will likely get a big bump in the polls. The New Hampshire polling is not quite as close as Iowa, but it's also pretty close. So. If Biden, if Buttigieg, if Sanders, if Warren wins Iowa, they would probably also be favored in New Hampshire, which gives you a further bump. And then you get into the the complexities of Nevada and South Carolina. And then when people talk about South Carolina, they're like, oh, that's totally different yeah, because of black, black people. because black people live there. Right. And right. And, and that's the thing is like fundamentally the reason it's so much closer in Iowa than nationwide is that. Biden has a huge lead with African Americans, and there are no black people in Iowa. And this doesn't strike me. I, I'm not like a Joe Biden stan, but like in principle, that doesn't seem like a good reason for the race to be close. In general, it strikes me that presidential primaries are one of those things where if you're paying attention to the infrastructure, like that's a problem. Uh-huh. Like, it is not great for the Democratic Party and particularly for Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez that, like, there has been so much attention to the structure of these primaries after a primary cycle in 2016 that ended with a bunch of rule changes so that people would be able to use the primary less to attack the idea that their candidate was, like, disfavored. But, I mean, yeah, they did, like, a million tweaks, but they didn't at all change this fundamental where it's, like, Iowa and New Hampshire matter Right, no, it was a fighting the last war problem. It was designed to prevent Hillary Clinton from having a long, drawn-out primary with Bernie Sanders again as if that were going to happen. Right. But 
the dynamic that's shown up with the questioning of the kind of whiteness, the overwhelming whiteness of Iowa has been a dynamic that's been led by some of the, you know, candidates of color and their champions. Julian Castro has like made a big, you know, Julian Castro went to Iowa to tell them that Iowa shouldn't be first, which is, you know, kind of a bravado move. Props for that. But Julian Castro is not the candidate who would necessarily benefit from more diverse states going first. And that's like the one of the fundamentally weird dynamics of this field is that there is a certain amount of angst among some of the Democratic base and commentariat that the process as we have it is leading to, you know, there won't be any candidates of color on stage at the next debate. Andrew Yang. The top tier. I stand corrected. I sit corrected. The top tier of candidates insofar as there is like an unquestioned top four is all white. But it really is calling into question the difference between, you know, is what the Democratic Party is going for a like a diverse elite, a diverse slate of candidates, or is what the Democratic Party is going for a diverse base that like might gravitate toward a white candidate? That is exactly the question that if you're challenging Iowa's primacy, you're going to run into in a race where Joe Biden is like favored because he's the leader overwhelmingly in South Carolina. Yeah. And, and I mean, I feel like the entire debate, and I know that this is getting like a little, I, I don't know what the exact opposite of being in the weeds <laughs> is. Perhaps, I don't know, somewhere floating in the air above the weeds. A floating bit. high above the So forest. much of this debate is about, you know, we've talked a little bit about electability on this podcast and mm-hmm. kind of the idea of this of this race. Because the point, as I read it, is to find someone to be the Democratic nominee to beat Donald Trump. And so there's an idea that what— And govern the country. I mean, honestly, I think in some—I mean, with the, uh, you know, the alleged talk that Biden said that he would only serve one term and then his campaign knocked it down, like, the entire concept of this is like, yeah, we're going to govern the country and do some things. There have been some interesting articles recently about what Bernie would do in office. But a lot of people are like, who can beat Donald Trump? Yeah, that th- is there's definitely focus. a make America normal again. Yeah, vibe. there's like the raison d'etre of this is beat Donald Trump. So I think that it's interesting how this race has been posited that like you, we either really, really focus on Iowa or we basically give up on Iowa because it doesn't matter because South Carolina is more, you know, cognizant of what the actual country looks like. But this all seems to be a lot of like democratic anxiety talk that is somewhat disconnected from what's actually happening. I mean, it's interesting because you go back and you look at, like, who was leading in in this time in 2008, who was leading in this time in 2004. But at the same time, you know, those obviously were different contexts, but I do think that there's a sense of, like, how much of this is actual concern from the actual campaigns and how much of this is democratic, esoteric anxiety talk. Right, and this does, and and this kind of gets to a longstanding question about staggering primaries in early states, and in particular, like, Iowa and New Hampshire as these states that have traditions of, like, everybody is going to come through here for a year, and so we are going to be the most informed electorate you have ever seen, gosh darn it. And, like, high-minded, you know, civic republicanism, like, 
wouldn't you love to have an electorate where everybody really, really, really cares about going to see every candidate and hearing what they stand for aside? The argument that I could imagine being made from an electability perspective is, look, most normal people are not paying attention to the presidential campaign right now, but many of them will be paying attention to the presidential campaign come, say, September 2020. And so we are the people who are paying as much attention to candidates now as everybody else will be nine months from now, so we should be your your advance guard. And like, this gets me back to the question that I have over and over again about Joe Biden is, are less obsessive followers of the Democratic primary race more keyed into Joe Biden because they're normal and the rest of us are not? Or are they more keyed into Joe Biden because they're not watching him very closely? But but this is where I really think the case for Iowa, New Hampshire has fallen down, right? That, I mean, I think traditionally, if you were looking at the American primary system, right, as Dara was saying, you would say, look, from a standpoint of, like, democratic logic, it's odd to give excess weight to these two random states. On the other hand, if you did a national primary, the fear would be that that would give an overwhelming advantage to people who are already well-known and well-connected, right? And that what you get from the small states is the chance for a politician who's not that well-known to show up in person at a lot of small events, generate word of mouth. It's not expensive to campaign in Iowa. Uh, Even running TV ads in Iowa is relatively cheap. And so that you can get a higher quality uh, of, of nominating process. One thing that we really saw in the 2020 cycle, though, is that that's not true anymore. Uh, Ellen Nelson did a really good um, reported piece from New Hampshire, which is her home state. Uh, she's worked there as a journalist. She she spent a lot of time there this cycle for Vox. And the angst that New Hampshire politicos are feeling at the recognition that their people – it's not that the distribution of opinion in New Hampshire is identical to the national distribution of opinion. It's just different because New Hampshire is whiter and better educated than the country as a whole. But if you do rudimentary statistical – controls, right? New Hampshire voters don't have some different view of the race than demographically similar voters in Texas or California or Idaho, right? They're responding to the national messages. And that's reflected in the fact that the the top candidates are former Vice President Joe Biden, then Bernie Sanders, who was the second place finisher from the time before. And who was a senator from the neighboring state. Right. Then like Elizabeth Warren, who was probably the best known Democratic senator. And then Pete Buttigieg, who's like a total nobody, but who did a ton of media at an opportune time and did a pretty good job of it and got his name out there and became a national fundraising Mm -hmm. sensation, right? There's nobody who, like, I promise you, like, I have met Steve Bullock um, in a small room with him. He is a very charismatic guy. It is not at all mysterious to me how he managed to win elections in a conservative state. And if you see people who who went to his little events in Iowa, like they they agree he's a he's a charismatic guy, but he's not an influential national figure. He doesn't have a big uh, profile. He didn't have a super clear message and he went nowhere, as did everyone who went for this kind of traditional approach. So now really all you have in Iowa and New Hampshire is an overweighting of white Democrats' opinions vis-a-vis Democrats of, of color. And then the further complication is Traditionally, I think you would have looked to left-wing people to criticize that system. But now that it's emerged in the fullness of time that white Americans are more conservative than black and Latino Americans, but white Democrats are more left-wing. So it's like the voices you would expect 
to hear complaining about the stifling of African-Americans' voice and influence in the primary are not people who are actually sad on the merits that this disadvantages Joe Biden. And so – you know, it's it's gone a little bit missing from from the discourse that like white liberals are being super empowered through this system. I, I, I do want to asterisk. I think both of us have separate yeah. asterisks yeah. on that. <laughs> like, I just I think that this is something that intra Democratic Party uh, discussions can often get confused about. There's a difference between like the people who are loyal enough to the party that they're super all in in the presidential primary, whether they're all in for a particular candidate or like they are absolutely committed to voting for whoever is at the top of the ticket, but they are, like, involved enough in in the process to care. And the pool of people from whom Democrats can plausibly pull when the general election comes around. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the – like, if you think about it, if the argument from a certain kind of centrist Democrat is to pull back the Obama-Trump voters, by definition – when you say white Democrats are more liberal than non-white Democrats, like the Obama-Trump voters are not the Democrats you're talking yes. about in this context. Those people are like they're coming into the room at a later date. The people in the room right now are bought in either out of like institutional loyalty to the party or out of ideological loyalty. Right. I also think it's important to note that like what liberal or conservative mean specifically with reference to black voters is a very – There's a lot of nuance there that I think sometimes gets missed because there's kind of cultural conservatism, which and, you know, kind of religiosity. But then also there's the conservatism of your understanding of federal power. And that's where, you know, for African-Americans, I talked about this when I taught my class at the University of Chicago, that African-Americans in general have a very different experience of federal power than white Americans do, which means that their conservatism is a lot less like small government hashtag don't tread on me than what conservatism can sometimes look like for white Americans. So I just want to make that point. But I mean, but I actually think the the relevant thing for the primary is not conservatism, but moderateness, right? That white people with mushy political opinions tend to be Republicans. Right. Because that's identity politics. Whereas black people with mushy political opinions tend to be Democrats. Right. Because that's also identity politics. But also, you know, it's also an understanding of what, you know, kind of we can be mushy about these things, but we recognize that, like, in, you know, in the near term history, this has gone in a very specific direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, anyway, it's the the voters who are disenfranchised by this process are the voters who are less inclined to have incredibly strong ideological commitments and who are more open to the like the the Joe Biden Hillary Clinton message but even you saw in New York right when Andrew Cuomo was being challenged by Cynthia Nixon or right. in this Queens DA race even where you know in that case specifically the progressive challenger was like trying to run on a criminal justice reform type message but the machine candidate did much better with black voters who um, believe a lot in like party politics uh, and just like don't have the visceral hostility to, quote unquote, the establishment that you see with lots and lots of uh, particularly younger white voters and people, you know, going going for Bernie and stuff like that. So you had, I mean, Dara, you were talking about this, this sort of weird phenomenon of like Julian Castro pretending that like he was the person who was being hurt by this, which is like, I mean, he was raising, I think, a fair point on the merits. But like we, we could see that like 
Hispanic Democrats are not that interested in him. Black Democrats aren't that interested in him. Uh, That's not his problem. Castro, I think, is an interesting case because Castro, unlike Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, has managed to make inroads with, like, activists of color Mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party, like— Not a whole lot of people were all that enthusiastic about Julian Castro at the beginning of this cycle. And he has run an extremely, you know, if I say identitarian, I think that's often taken as a pejorative. But, like, Julian Castro has run a campaign where he, like, makes a point, uh, you know, made a point of, like, saying the names of trans women of color who'd been murdered on stage and made sure he had, like, the first and most detailed disability rights platform. Like, mm-hmm. it's a it's a unity of culture war issues and, and you know, the, the, like, bully pulpit that's traditionally associated with them and actual, you know, policymaking that I think is going to be instructive for future candidates who want to try to run in that lane. It hasn't worked for him. <laughs> and he um, got widely praised think, by, by activists. Right, I mean, exactly. As, as but, as, right, right. Like, I, I think that, I think you've, you know, the question— I think the question facing the Castro campaign in particular is, did he actually hit the ceiling that you can hit for this kind of campaign in the 2020 cycle, or was there something else going on? I don't have an answer to that. But the broader question here is a question of, like, is a political party a representational body where, like, its members get to decide who represents their interests regardless? Or is it more of a corporatist body where, like, the Democratic Party in particular has long been a coalition of various interests? Mm -hmm. It is – you can make a logical argument that, like – Movement for Black Lives activists should, in fact, be able to say, look, we understand our communities. You can't, like, ignore us just because you're polling well with our parents and grandparents. Like, you can actually make an argument for that given what the Democratic Party has traditionally been. It's just that right now the primary—like, because the primary process is, uh, like, especially in primary states and— to a slightly lesser extent in caucuses, such a representational model, if you're going to have a vanguardist view of the party that, like, the activist base on in X constituency speaks for the constituency, you do not actually have any kind of power behind that. And so that model of, like, you know, it, it it's going to be interesting, I think, to see if Joe Biden wins the primary because Clinton w- had to run, had to kind of court to a certain extent, activists of color to get base excitement during the 2016 primary. If Joe Biden doesn't have any kind of Bernie Sanders-like single challenge, if Bernie Sanders does not, in fact, break out of the, like, Sanders-Warren Buttigieg, since apparently a lot of Democratic voters don't necessarily don't, – don't think of the clearly defined ideological lanes that pundits do, um, you know – If it doesn't become a two-person race and Biden is able to cruise to the nomination, I think there is going to be a very interesting question faced of, like, what does Joe Biden owe the activists (laughs) of color who are trying to hold him accountable for positions that don't necessarily bother the electorate as a whole for their constituency? He he owes them nothing, right? I mean, that's the— That's the the, the, the glory of Joe Biden. That discussion is coming down the pike. Sure. I also think, though, that one of the challenges, and I think Dara was getting got to this a little bit, is that the Democratic Party is a you know one of the things that people talk about when they talk about the Republican Party is that the you know like why is the Republican Party all locked in on Trump? Well, the Republican Party is smaller than it was in say 2015, and more united because again it is smaller. Whereas you have a lot of people who do not think of themselves as being Democrats, but now vote for Democrats or have voted for Democrats, as we saw in midterms in 2017 and 2018. 
So there are a host of Democratic candidates who seem to be thinking that, like, ah, what I should, you know, is the question, do we go after those squishy former Republican, I feel like the Republican Party left me, you know, with Trump, should I vote for Democrats, but maybe the Democrats are too far left? Kind of like, you know, do you do you go for kind of the Tom Tom's Nichols of the world, or do you go for the kind of the idea that what happened in 2016 is that Hillary did not adequately energize young voters and the base. And because in general, with, um, you know, there's been, a, I was talking to someone about kind of the idea of populism and how, you know, in general, when people, you know, when white voters get mad, they vote Republican. When black voters get mad, they don't vote. <laughs> and kind of, you know, do you go for someone who will get that squishy middle of kind of, independent Republican-leading voters, or do you go for someone who is going to get young people and non-white voters to the polls no matter what? And there seems to be kind of this break in how that's going to work. And one of the challenges is that the Democratic Party is an extremely large tent, and it wasn't intended perhaps to be that big a tent and to attempt to assuage all of the different voices within it, all of whom have very different answers as to the question of not just who can best run the country, but who can defeat Donald Trump. Right. Well, I, I, have, I have a question for y'all, but we should probably take a yeah, break. Yeah, let's take yeah. a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So something that I remember seeing a lot during the 2016 primary, or sorry, during the 2016 cycle generally is like, we know that, that candidates represent 
a whole lot of different things and people can vote for candidates for a whole lot of different reasons. But like at the end of the day, you are not pulling the lever for a theory of beating Donald Trump. You are pulling the lever for an individual person. And so like often those things can exist, coexist uneasily, right? Mm -hmm. With like, you know, the idea that Bernie Sanders, the 70-something loudmouth from Brooklyn, is going to be the person who is going to win back a disaffected, you know, Rust Belt voter, that kind of thing. I understand that there is a class-based argument for that. It's just that the personality of Bernie Sanders makes it a little bit it, – it sits, it sits a little bit more uneasily than it would if Bernie Sanders were himself from the, from the Rust Belt, et cetera. Anyway, my question with all of this is how does that kind of like – we already have this uneasy jockeying between – theories of change and how to beat Trump, candidates as individuals, and the structure of the Democratic Party that are kind of like coming to a head when we look at where we stand in the primaries right now. How does this get blown up if Mike Bloomberg makes it onto the stage at one of the future debates? Because like that's a, you know, the question of debate qualifications has been obviously something that people pay attention more attention to if their candidates aren't making it. Mm -hmm. And so, so far, like, yeah, you're pissing off a few, like, Julian Castro and, like, Cory Booker voters, but, like, there are there definitionally aren't enough of them to make that a big problem for the party. I think that if you have Bloomberg, who does not represent a theory of change, as far as anyone—like, other than everyone is too far left, including Joe Biden, which doesn't appear to be, like— I don't know. May maybe we do need him on the debate stage so he can actually articulate <laughs> this. Like, who isn't— who certainly doesn't represent, like, a particular model of how the Democratic Party should work. Right. Um, who exists basically only—like, he only really has a presence on one of those three polls. And if he's on the debate stage, how does that kind of—does that—is that going to throw into relief for people that the nominating process is, like, not leading them to where they think the party needs to be? Or do you think that this is just going to be, like, it, it because he's unlikely to win the nomination, it's probably going to be easily forgotten? I— I would put it differently. Okay. <laughs> I think that everybody needs to ask themselves, like, back to first principles. Like, what are we trying to achieve? Not, like, with our selection <laughs> of a 2020 nominee, but with a nominee selection yes. process. Yes. Right? Because I, I feel like people get invested in particular races, and then they wind up getting invested in particular procedural things that will advantage or disadvantage the candidate they have at hand, right? So, you know, when it was going in the 2016 race, Bernie Sanders greatly outperformed in uh, caucus states and also superdelegates overwhelmingly tilted toward Hillary Clinton. So it became an article of faith after the election that, like, leftists wanted to get rid of superdelegates and more moderate Democrats would then make them get made them get rid of the caucuses, except for Iowa, as like part of a swap. But like, why? Right? Like, like, why were you doing that? And I think that, you know, when people have looked at Michael Bloomberg, whether he makes any hay or not, right, you start to see the case for superdelegates much more clearly, which is not about Hillary versus Bernie in particular, but it's about entryism in general, right, that the superdelegates stop a person who is not really part of the party network from swooping in. And there was this round of concern about Michael Avenatti, and that, you know, sort of dissipated. Then there was this round of concern about Michael Bloomberg. Uh, you could imagine a wave of concern about Andrew Yang. But these are all from very different directions, right? Like Bernie from the socialist left, Michael Bloomberg from 
plutocracy, Yang from God knows where, um, Avenatti just from cable television, right? But, like, that's the concern that the superdelegates were supposed to address, right? And now they're gone. And I never saw anybody who got rid of them, say, in, like, a, a separate from the specific contours of a specific race. I think it's important for the party to be more open to entryist strategies, right? And maybe you can make that case, but you should think broadly about, like, what those strategies are likely to look like. Because I think Bloomberg is offering by far the most plausible entryist strategy, right? Which is just be incredibly rich, swamp people with money. He in some ways is a relatively weak entryist because he was actually mayor of New York for 12 years, right? Like in- Although not entirely as a Democrat. Right, no, no, but, but that's what I mean, that like he's better qualified than like- a random oh, okay, billionaire fair. would be, but because he's well qualified, he also has this specific record that he's accountable for, and that I think will make it very hard for him to win, right? But somebody imagine Michael Bloomberg had never been mayor, that he just woke up one day and was like, I'm dropping 50 billion bucks on this. I don't know, like, could he win? Could he not? I feel like you look at this primary, it's very long, right? It's, it's incredibly time consuming. It clearly generates a lot of ill will. Right, there's a lot of people mad online at each other. Uh, it costs a lot. And of- I think we've we've seen we we're like now in this bizarre ill will dynamic where the candidates not attacking Joe Biden, the candidates not named Joe Biden, not attacking Joe Biden as much as they're attacking each other, right. has like bred ill will in a lot of ways that are much more tyranny of petty differences right. than you would expect. Yeah, right, exactly. So you, you, a lot of money is spent not on beating Republicans. A lot of ill will is generated inside the coalition. A lot of time is soaked up. And, like, none of that seems good, right? And I feel like you should try to be reforming the process to make it shorter, to make it cheaper, and to make it somehow more positive, Right. That like just in terms of like like neutral principles, like as a party, you want the nominating contest to not bankrupt people, to not exhaust everybody and to not leave everybody hating each other. And you should be trying to look for changes that would like optimize for those values, because like there's a bunch of people in the race, like only one of them can win. Like most people who who are active enough to care about primaries are going to end up disappointed with the choice. And, like, whoever wins and their supporters is going to want the people who supported the other people to, like, come on, get ahead. And you have to ask yourself, like, what is the point of having this, like, months-long discourse about how, like, anyone who might ever have found Pete Buttigieg charming is, like, a scumbag? Right. Like, how does that help Bernie Sanders become president? Like, it, it's a very toxic to me. And in like the UK, you would pick a new leader like over the weekend. Right. I mean, well, I was I was just about to ask how much of this is just the executivization of federal politics and the extent to which that like requires people to pour a whole lot of interest into these individual personalities. Like, I'm not sure that I mean, yes, I agree. It's, like, not super helpful. I'm also not entirely sure that there's a better way for people to be spending a lot of emotional energy on the Democratic presidential primary in nineteen from an, in 2019 from an efficacy perspective, right? right? There are a lot of other things that, like, if I were a Democratic 
strategist, I could think and like and I had if this were like a German board game and I had the little mooples and I could like determine each turn where I were putting my mooples, like I would not be putting that many mooples in early turns toward pr- the presidential primary. What the fuck are mooples? <laughs> Wait, I don't not it, that may not actually be the accepted term. They're the like little token things that you like, you know, when you have the like workers that you distribute in I never, a, I never in a board one game. Of these games. I don't know what kind of nerds are on this show. um, But there there are two kinds of nerds on this show, people who have no idea what I'm talking about and people who are going to get very mad at me because I'm now increasingly certain mooples is not the correct term. Anyway, um, if I, like, if I had 100%, like, tyrannical power to determine where resources went, I would not be doing this in, like, the early stages. But having decided, apparently, that the thing that Democrat— that the Democratic base should be paying a lot of attention to in 2019 is the Democratic presidential primary. Like, is there an alternative? Like, is there an alternative where this doesn't lead to a lot of toxic fan politics? No, no. This is what we're doing. We, well, could, just, we could just let Jane pick. I mean, I've been saying for years that if everyone just ceded control of everything to me, we'd all be so much happier. But no, I think that. Especially in this idea of kind of, okay, who can defeat Donald Trump and kind of the idea of Trump, not the actual Donald Trump, who's actually a pretty unpopular president for having such a good economy and an economy that for many people isn't actually that good, but it doesn't really show up in a lot of economic indicators. Um, I think that like the idea of defeating this concept of Donald Trump has contributed to the toxicity Especially because there's kind of this idea of, like, who would be the ideal foil? Would it be someone like Joe Biden, who is old and says malarkey a lot, but has a lot of kind of brand loyalty? Is it someone like Pete Buttigieg, who seems, like, so inoffensive that perhaps that that would be effective? Is it someone like Bernie Sanders, who will— take a stand for the workers against the purported status quo in a way that Trump said he would but never actually was ever going to. But a lot, I think the toxicity, I mean, this is when it becomes kind of a contest of personalities. I mean, I I think a lot about, um, well, I mean, I think a lot about a lot of things, but I think a lot about the 1928 um, and 1924 Democratic conventions, which were purportedly about nominating someone to run for president, but were actually about prohibition and thus actually about kind of cities versus towns and rural areas versus the coastal elites. And it's interesting how that, like, the concept of personalities, the idea that somehow Herbert Hoover represented something beyond being Herbert Hoover is, like, the idea of people being beyond who they actually are is not at all new. And I think that, like, it was kind of inevitable that it would turn into just people screaming about how Pete Buttigieg isn't the right type of gay person. Get your mooples. Mooples together. All right, let's let's take another break. Talk, talk so that I can a, look up. What talk, the- talk about a white paper and figure out what a moople is. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just twenty five dollars a month, taxes and fees included. That's right, twenty five a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Okay, our paper today is by Jinwoo Kim, Evan Morgan, and Brendan Nihan. It is called Treatment versus Punishment, Understanding Racial Inequalities in Drug Policy. Uh, So this is—I was interested in this paper because I think a lot of people have hot-taked that it seems like the opioid— 
epidemic is generating a less punitive response than prior waves of of drug use and that this has something to do with race. Uh, But it's never been like super clear to me whether that's true or not or even how you would know. Um, Right. I mean, I think a lot of that honestly comes from like a media – like it can be difficult to distinguish between – smart people doing ad hoc media analysis and, like, academic content analysis. And, like, given how mediated drug panics tend to be, I think there is an argument that could be made for, like, the headlines are more favorable. But, yes. So these guys tried to actually, like, dig into this in a a specific way uh, by looking at uh, drug deaths on a congressional district level and legislative behaviors. Uh, and they show that, you know, during uh, the, the crack epidemic, uh, drug legislation was more punitive. And also that there is a, a – then during the, the opioid ec- epidemic, you're more likely to see tre- um, treatment-oriented legislation. Uh, and they also show that the, quote, the relationship between district-level drug deaths and subsequent sponsorship of treatment-oriented legislation is greater for opioid deaths than for cocaine-related deaths, and for white victims than for black victims. That's sort of the, um, that's the rub, right, of what people have been suspecting. And they show that essentially it is true, right, that when you have more black victims, there is more of a punitive response. When you have more white victims, there's more of a treatment-oriented response. Right. Uh, It's worth saying that they definitely showed a stronger evidence for for the, like, white deaths lead to more treatment than black deaths lead to more punishment. Yes. Um, Um, So this, I think, will not, like, shake your understanding of the situation to its bones, uh, since I think a lot of people had reached this conclusion on a casual basis. Uh, But it's interesting to see that it is actually, in fact, true. Um, Although I wonder where you go with it, because I've, I've sometimes heard this observation made, you know, with a with a kind of bitterness, like, like, shouldn't we lock up these white people, too? Like, out of a sense of cosmic fairness? But then nobody really thinks that because the right. people who have— like, the people making a racial critique of drug policy from the 80s, like, think that the new, more lenient approach is, in fact, correct. Right. No, like, the idea is not, like, we should be going as hard as we did on crack and specifically crack, not powder cocaine, because that was very different. Um, no, the idea is not to go as hard on that as we did in 1985, um, you know, with Nancy Reagan showing up on different strokes to ask people if they'd done crack. You, what, The idea would be to take what we're, what we're attempting or even just how we talk about opioids and people dealing with opioid addiction. And something that I, I thought was interesting, they, they discussed in the paper how um, they treated mortality data differently. But I also think that perhaps part of this is that how people, you know, the common story of how people get into using opioids is different than how it is for uh, for crack and how it is for other drugs, kind of the common like, oh, I hurt my back and then I was prescribed this and then it kind of just spiraled from there. I think that that storyline is different. But yeah, the idea is not to like be as harsh on opioid addiction as we were on other forms of addiction. The idea is to not be as harsh at all. I mean, they do try to account for the kind of different narratives in this paper by, by also looking at methamphetamine deaths because meth is a like stereotypically white-coated drug, but it also doesn't have the sympathetic, like, you did nothing wrong, you were duped by the medical system. But that leads me to one of the, I think, complicating factors here, which is it's not 
clear to me whether what's going on is that legislators genuinely don't want a punitive response to the opioid crisis or rather that they like that that their first reaction and strongest reaction is treatment rather than punishment it seems plausible that because the villains of the opioid crisis are business entities right, right. they're either i mean yes to a certain extent doctors but like really there is a very powerful left populist narrative that like the sacklers and the pharmaceutical companies are responsible for the opioid crisis in a similar way to tobacco companies being responsible for smoking that like that's harder to legislate punitively certainly in the way it's being coded here and so you know and, and so I, I wonder to a certain extent, is this a difference of what legislators' instincts are, or is it that there are some instincts that are simply easier to turn into bills than others? Yeah, I mean, and then there are also just questions of the sort of changing baseline over time, right? Because one thing about the current state of American criminal justice policy is that as a legacy of the greatly increasing prison population of the past, we now have this very large prison population, and we have uh, enormous financial costs associated with that. And to an extent, this like big bipartisan push to reverse the mass incarceration trend. Uh, and like none of that existed in the in the 80s, right? So it was much more um, sort of skiing downhill to lengthen prison sentences, whereas it would be a heavy lift right now, right, against, I don't quite want to say, like, against entrenched interests exactly, but, like, against a big built-up movement that's pushing in the opposite direction. I think you would, it's challenging to have, like, big de-incarceration measures because changing things is hard and because backlash politics and stuff is still in effect. But I think you would struggle even in a sort of welcoming public opinion environment to really get votes together for like a huge new expansion of prison populations, uh, if only just because of the fiscal issues that, you know, started leading this in in the other direction. I guess the other thing I think about this is it it doesn't seem to me that the more treatment-focused approach to opioids has been all that successful. I think, yeah, it's interesting because our colleague, Herman Lopez, has been doing this series on rehabs and on, like, on treatment in general. And one of the challenges in— The point uh, of the series is not that that, everybody went into this treatment and they were cured. Right. Well, it's especially because—but I think even the use of—you know, this is one of those moments where language matters, which it usually does. As opposed to, right. Sometimes you can just— say things. But it, you know, but I think that even the focus on treatment and the idea of treatment as the ideal and not incarceration is a shift. Even if in many cases, and you know, our colleague has discussed and I've talked about this a lot, that one of the challenges with addiction research is that no one quite knows what works. And even the things we think work don't maybe don't work the way we think they do. Like even the idea of kind of group therapy and the 12-step program, a lot of that is based on kind of anecdata, data and it's unclear how well that works kind of across the spectrum of things that people might abuse. But, you know, it, it's interesting because there's the, the entire idea of like is talking about treatment more, you know, on a focus on treatment that I think that's still worthwhile while we're still trying to figure out the ideal form of treatment. This kind of does bring me back to the the fact that, like, some panics are just easier to legislate than others and some instincts are easier to turn into legislation than others. And, you know, I think that that's definitely part of, like, honestly, my biggest takeaway from this paper 
above and beyond any disparities the authors are finding is just how much slower the response to the opioid crisis has been. Like the, you know, there are charts in here, and I know charts on podcasts are a fool's errand, and I would try to like slide whistle them, but really you should just click the link in show notes. But like the chart of deaths over the last several decades to due to opioids and cocaine is in it's wild like they point out that even during the height of the crack panic more people were dying due to opioid addiction than due to or overdoses than due to cocaine like the extent to which that has not you know it wasn't part of the narrative at the time it's taken a while to like get any kind of critical mass of you know, policymaking attention, it still hasn't gotten, you know, it's 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 only just gotten to the point where there are more bills being proposed now on drugs than were during the peak of the crack panic, at least. Some of this, I think, is on the media. Like, there are some stats in here about how little, like, front-page New York Times coverage there's been of opioids versus crack, that kind of thing. Once you've accepted that addiction is a hard problem and that you cannot just pass a bill and get out of it, that that makes it a little harder to talk about because when we expect our policymakers to also be politicians who are going to have to, like, deliver on their campaign promises, right? there's a real disincentive to taking on any problem that you don't at least have a pretty good idea how to fix. Right. Yes. I agree with that. Right. No, I mean, it's like <laughs> once you decide, okay, you don't want to lock people up and throw away the key, you would like to provide them with treatment. But then it turns out that the treatment is expensive and it's not clear that it works. Right. Then maybe, yeah, maybe like you want to talk about something else. Right. Because yeah, like, exactly. if you if you put money into hiring more teachers to make the class sizes smaller, like you can do that. Right. Whereas like And that's also where like naming rhetorical villains gets you like you can you can point to understanding the problem by saying, oh, yeah, like those evil X, Y, Z. Right. Take take but the Sackler name as, off the art museum right, expresses right. outrage exactly. without requiring you to solve the problem. I mean, isn't that kind of the ideal to like to just express outrage without being required to solve the problem? That's the dream. But if you want to solve problems, you should listen to the weeds. Tell your friends to listen to the weeds. Get in the Facebook. Tell us how to solve uh, drug addiction. And if and you other are listening like to that. this on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, you should you still have time to come see the weeds live at Sixth and I yes. in DC. On Excellent Wednesday point. Evening. Hope to see you there. I'm sure we will see some of you there. Okay. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Malachi Brodus and Jackson Bierfeld, our engineer and our producer, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.